As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zael Mednick and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. In the West, when many of us hear the word communism, our minds likely flash to images of ruthless dictators like Stalin in the USSR and Mao in China. Or we might think of the Cold War, where communism served as the philosophical and economic enemy of Western capitalism. But communism as it has been practiced over the last century emerged from the philosophies of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the 1800s. Communism emerged from Marxism, as outlined in the Communist Manifesto many years ago. So what was the initial communist dream? How did the philosophical origins of communism morph over time in the 20th century? Did communism in practice actually resemble anything close to the initial ideologies? I'm joined today by Terrell Carver. Terrell is a professor of political theory at Bristol University. He has specialized in Marx, Engels, and Marxism, and on philosophy and methodology of social science. Besides doing his own translations of Marx, he has investigated the exact roles played by Engels in the composition of the Marxian canon. In addition, he has done work contributing to the political theory of sex, gender, and sexuality, in particular in international relations. All right, so Terrell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's um, great to be here this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It's afternoon for you in the UK. It's a, a dark gray morning for me here in Toronto, as I, as I, as I showed you over Zoom. So, well, we'll see if we can make the sun shine. It's shining here. <laughs> so as I mentioned in the introduction there, there's a lot of preconceptions about communism. When people hear the word communism, they think about ruthless dictators often. They think about Karl Marx but there's a big gap there in terms of how Karl Marx and Engels and how their philosophy of Marxism eventually morphed into what we know as communism in the 20th century. So I guess to start, what is Marxism in its most basic form in the way that Karl Marx way back when in the 1800s and Engels were philosophizing about it? And I know that's um, a big question. <laughs> 
Well, it's kind of a big pushback. So I would uh, just say for openness, that communism has always been a disturbing idea. It goes back to Plato's dialogue, The Republic, and it picks up again with Thomas More's Utopia, which was too radical to be published in his lifetime in the early 16th century. So communism has been um, developed as a kind of social program that was meant to disturb the status quo. So we have to start uh, with that idea and then uh, we can move along uh, the line uh, to see why it became even more disturbing in the 20th century for all kinds of reasons. So to say that it was meant to disturb people, that some actually quite kind-hearted philosophers were behind it, isn't to say that it was necessarily very kind-hearted when other people picked it up as a slogan and used it for their own purposes to do their own kinds of things. So I think it's fair enough to say that philosophers had some ideas and other people got a hold of them, but then philosophers weren't actually involved in the political processes through which realities, good or bad, actually emerge. So, so Marx and Engels, they weren't the first people to philosophize this, you're saying. It went back all the way to Plato and then Moore and other people, but I guess for some reason it was not even adopted during their lifetimes, but it became more publicized for the first time in the 1800s, this idea of communism? Um, well, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's always been a disturbing idea, and it's not not really been a secret. And there's uh, been a lot lot of it around. It's basically a view that uh, society should be organised around the collective and attend to individual needs and draw out individual uh, talents, and so essentially refrain from war, exploitation, savagery, slavery, and all, all those other kinds of things, which are predominantly commodity-driven, that is, driven by commercialism and money. So I think it's fair to say that communism originally, uh, back in the ancient Greek world, is a reaction to commercial relationships, commodification developed. So we know, and apparently the story of King Midas is true, that he actually invented so commercialized coinage and that was used to regularize trade and became a store of value and became a way uh, through which some people acquired quite a lot of power over others in terms of basic necessities like getting any access to food or shelter or anything like that. So essentially under commodification you get dispossessed, frozen out and you can turn up looking for work the way people do on street corners and sidewalks uh, today and have to hustle. So essentially communism was a pushback on that, saying that there must be a better way uh, to organize society that's less driven by individual greed and gain and more driven by what people actually need. So it's, it's the origins of socialism in the same way and it percolates on through all kinds of things. And if we uh, can fast forward pretty directly to the 1820s and 1830s, it's really having a heyday and a huge moment in France and elsewhere on the European continent, again, for the same reason that it's pushed back. And do you think the intentions of Marx and Engels when they were outlining this philosophy do you think they were noble in that it was from this genuine interest to help people in society who were in lower classes and that 
they they really were trying to come from a good place with developing these. I think that's true of um, everybody that I can think of who identified with communism up to the uh, 20th century. When we get to the nationalism, nation building, and uh, the kind of warfare that that caused. So the Bolshevik revolution, for instance, was done in in the name of uh, communism. And um, how far did that go in terms of getting a good reception? I mean, uh, plenty of uh, people in Britain, France, and various other places joined an army to go and invade it and put it down. So, I mean, before it could even get started. So, you know, in effect, well, and then what happens in that revolution unfolds after a, a foreign intervention to put a stop to the whole idea, which was deemed too dangerous, which is where I came in in the first place, really which is that in a world of commodification and ownership of the means of production and dispossession of uh, people who normally would work on the land, so the idea that, uh, that there's anything wrong with that is highly suspect. So, I mean, we, we could look at a bit about the, the kind of middle ground, which uh, is, tends to be occupied by socialism and social, and social democracy, which is, in a sense, a, a reform of uh, uh, the capitalist system and a, a pushback on exploitation and various forms of regulation and uh, redistribution. And I guess to pick up the tale with Marx and Engels, they weren't at all against that as a first stage, but it is true. So their view was from um, the very early 1840s that there's only so far you can go with that. In capitalism to yeah. have that socialism we think of today. Uh, Exactly, because uh, you get uh, lots of pushback, which otherwise known as armed force and intervention, uh, by those who benefit from the system and convince others that it's the only system or the best system. You get all that kinds of uh, pushback you know, externally, and you get lots of pushback internally. So those who are on side with capitalist commodification and benefit from exploitation are very often extremely good at convincing everybody that it's, uh, there is no alternative, as was famously said. So it's very hard work pushing back on commodification and money economies and what's developed into capitalism. In an ideal world, which this is not, and it was not, <laughs> Marx, Marx and Engels, beyond the adjustments to capitalism to modify it into a form of socialism, what would they have viewed, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, what would they have viewed as the best way for society to function logistically from an economic standpoint and a social standpoint? If they had their way, what would society have have looked like? Okay, we need to step back a bit on that as well. Namely, we need to look into their view about how such a change could possibly come about. Please. So here, here we divide a bit uh, amongst the uh, communists of old. Um, Marx and Engels were fully on board with mass democracy through a system of representative institutions and something at least quite like a constitution. What they were not on board with was the way constitutions protect the commodification uh, of uh, everything, human labor included, and therefore the rights to private property in land and labor and capital. So they're not on board with that, but they're fully on board with mass participation in decision making. 
And that's the legacy of the American Revolution of 1776 to 1781 and the French Revolution of uh, 1789 to about 1795. And so these are the modern democratic ideals. I mean, they also derive from the English Revolution of the 17th century and the various writings that occurred there. So there is a community of theorization there, much of which is actually practical, because the uh, theorists involved actually got into the political processes through which those things happened. They got their hands dirty and in some cases bloody doing it, pushing back on the pushbacks. So democracy itself emerges with force and violence. It does not, as the fairy stories would have it, emerge from rational people, always men, as it was originally written, uh, written, because women were written out of original democracy. So it does not emerge from rational people sitting down and uh, figuring out how government uh, should be legitimated and what kinds of things it should do. It actually emerges out of force, violence, civil war, foreign intervention, and all those kinds of things. But you're saying that Marx and Engels, for them, democracy was sort of the first step, a precondition towards everything else that you're going to explain what they envisioned. So once once they viewed that democracy would come in, however it did, peacefully or not peacefully, how did they, did they then envision a society in an ideal form where economy would be completely, completely centralized and there would be no privatization at all? There would be no such thing as a personal asset. How far did it go? Well, we're still not there yet. Okay, um, I'm, jumping the, I'm jumping the gun, Terrell. <laughs> That's okay. You know, this is um, actually quite, quite good to go through things step by step. So when we've got our mass participation democracy going, what uh, is included and what is excluded? So from the Marx and Engels point of view, the problem with such experiments in constitutional systems that had occurred to date was that they excluded from public control the economy and they invested in a property system which was already there. So their complaint was that uh, such experimental uh, setups as there had been, which were not very many, in fact, hardly any, namely um, the US and France at various times. But their complaint was that um, these regimes either took no responsibility through their participatory mechanisms for the economy, that it was supposed to run on its own, failed to take responsibility for a reform of the property system, even in a limited way, to ensure that even capitalism functioned in a way that was reasonably stable. So if you look at um, these regimes, and we're, we're only really in the 1830s here, uh, and 1840s, the economy is wildly out of control. Nobody's in charge of it. Um, so governments don't even try. It's supposed to run itself, and they were happiest when it was running for the benefit of the people who were in those governments, which were, though constitutional, not actually very democratic in modern terms. Only very propertied upper-class people could, could vote in the first place, and so guess who occupied all the offices? 
namely white property males or, you know, I mean, from the upper classes, I mean, all of that kind of thing. So I wouldn't run away with the idea that the initial revolutions produced what we would recognize as a mass democracy. And I wouldn't run away with the idea that anybody had much idea that the economy, that is the money system and the property system could be controlled, even if they wanted to. They just wanted it not to be overthrown and chaos and anarchy and disorder and mayhem you know, completely ensue because that was what they were afraid of because the governments were already run by the people who already benefited from that kind of property system. So keep going. So what was the next? Keep, what was keep the, going. What was, the, what was what, so? What was the next step? Guys, I don't want. I don't want to skip. I don't okay. want to skip steps. So the next step is, from the Marx and Engels point of view, is to persuade the mass electorate, which was a very brave and totally unpracticed ideal at that time. That is, neither the American uh, state nor the French state ever instituted mass even male democracy. It was proposed in the early days of the French Revolution and actually passed, but it got thrown out before anybody tried it. The first mass male suffrage national election was actually run in France years later in 1848. That is the world's first. So the idea that any Tom, Dick and Harry, and certainly not Jane, Sally or Susan, should vote at all was in those days almost unthinkable. But Marx and Engels were on, the, on the, the very radical end of this, saying, you know, whoever they are, men, because women voting is unthinkable, then there should be an equality there because actually they're all human beings and the current systems only treat them as owners or lack of property owners of only their own labor. So that's actually where they come into the story. So what they've got is this story about, hey, you know, the, the broad mass of men, don't just whine and complain, get in there and create a truly democratic system, not just with votes, but actually getting uh, representatives into a government that will take responsibility for the economy and thus for social welfare. So that was basically the program, and that's what the Communist Manifesto says. And that was what they had in mind for the immediate situation. Of course, if people wanted to go um, much further and really have a bash, really restructuring the system of commodification and labor and the uh, necessity to work and turn it into a uh, a social obligation and then organize distribution according to what it is that people need, according to their abilities or uh, disabilities, their points in the life cycle, etc. That would be even better. But, you know, one thing at a time. What really strikes me listening to you is that, again, as I said at the beginning, a lot of people, when they think of communism, they're not thinking about democracy. They're not thinking about equality. And it sounds like and we can talk a bit later about the dangers of just philosoph philosophizing and intellectualizing when you're not necessarily the one enacting it, which some have said about Marx, uh, and maybe to a lesser degree Engels. But what strikes me is that this is very democratic. When I asked you to give me the basis of what they were doing, it all came, it starts with democracy. Now, I know I'm jumping a lot of time here, but when you look at the transformation of Marxism into communism in the 20th century, it seems like what we think about at least is 
the opposite of democracy. We think of these brutal dictators, which is certainly in, in many ways the antithesis of democracy. How does that happen? Is it just a case of people using an idea that sounds great, let's make everything equal, but then they really are just trying to use that to cultivate their own power? Well, we're still not there yet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we need to... Take take us there at your own speed, Terrell. (laughs) No, you're doing a good job. We need to question the idea that Marx and Engels are philosophers at all. And that even if they were, they had no part in this democratic process and were outside it. So they did not actually see themselves as philosophers, and they specifically repudiated the idea that that's what they were doing. In fact, they've made fun of compatriot philosophers who thought they were doing political action by philosophizing about communism uh, and socialism, and they said very rude things about them that I won't repeat on a family podcast. So they were, in fact, political activists. They were agitators. But you have to understand the context that they were in, where standing on, you know, east of the Rhine, which is basically, I mean, they're both Rhinelanders. Okay, so we're on the kind of border between French-speaking, Dutch-speaking, German-speaking Europe. So that's where we are. So from their perspective, looking towards German-speaking Europe, and indeed their whole situation, there wasn't supposed to be any politics. This is before anything resembling modern constitutionalism. These are medieval or neo-medieval regimes. There are 40 or 50 German states. It's very important not to speak of Germany until after 1871 and the imperial constitution. And to bear in mind that German unification was not a popular project with very many people in the German-speaking lands, least of all with the petty rulers, princelings, prince archbishops, electors, kings, etc., who were in charge of all these little towns, principalities, and jurisdictions, all of whom valued the particular rackets that they had going at the time. And they are all extremely repressive. The, our censorship is you know, the absolute norm on publications. And church or churches and state are all the same thing. So they enforced religious orthodoxy as a political orthodoxy because uh, the religious orthodoxy guaranteed their absolute authority over the inhabitants. So anybody who was anything to do with the democratizing ideas of the French Revolution was automatically treasonous, subject to police activity. Anybody caught out doing that, so those people were often forced into exile. You couldn't talk about it in the universities because the teachers got fired, set up shop in Switzerland or lost their jobs. So we're dealing with very authoritarian, quite ruthless police state enforcing an orthodoxy. And this is uh, how things are from the Rhine to St. Petersburg. So that's actually the situation of where we are. And that's uh, how Marx and Engels are by definition activists, because they sympathize with these ideas. So what you could get away with was literary criticism and poetry and music and things like that, and stuff that was so recondite and unintelligibly philosophical that the censors couldn't understand it. So that is why some of their writing 
looks like philosophy now, particularly Marx, but also Engels. So this politics goes on as much as it does in a kind of coded language for the intelligentsia, pretty much. Hanging around as a, as a middle-class person with working-class persons was automatically suspicious to everybody. This is just not done. You were up to no good talking to that kind of person unless you were ordering them around and paying, your, paying their wages if you felt like it. And all of that's important because, as I said, there, there, there is this idea out there that Marx was just this guy sitting in a room mm. writing and philosophizing and completely out of touch with reality. But what I think I'm hearing is that's not necessarily the case. That was his only way really writing, sometimes obscurely and overly philosophically. That was his only way really of being political and trying to endorse change. Well, that was certainly true until all hell broke out in uh, February of 1848, when democratically inspired revolutions broke out in Europe from Paris all the way to Budapest. So these movements are involved with various ethno-national projects, but democratization and national unification were suddenly on the card. And that uh, was a huge burst of activity. National Assembly was called in Frankfurt, and the crowned heads and, and various rulers fled to the countryside. So this is a big moment, and uh, Marx and Engels set up their newspaper again in Cologne, in the Rhineland, and uh, published reportage on a European scale. They got regular reports from Paris, and Marx himself traveled to Vienna, Engels made speeches, in his, even in his hometown, and uh, elsewhere in the German states. And he actually uh, joined up with a group fighting for the revolution and got shot at, or anyway, that's the story. But they were essentially uh, radical journalists informing people what's what in factual terms, but also trying to help people to understand the strength and power that they could have within a democratic structure that was properly constitutional and indeed took hold of the... But there was plenty of pushback on that. So the revolutionary regimes were wound up and uh, the rulers pretty much all went back to where they were. There were some rearrangements and it uh, wasn't until a couple of decades later that uh, they wised up a bit and uh, constitutions gradually came in. But again, I emphasize, hardly anybody could vote for anything. And the whole system was rigged for the benefit of the property classes. So Marx and Engels had a wonderful moment in the 1848 uh, revolutions with ideas, and they did their best with what they had. So I think it's quite unreasonable to see them as uh, philosophers uh, who had nothing to do with events. They got in there and did. Marx made some speeches. He was a very bad public speaker, by the way. Well, I think that's really important to understand. That's really essential to understanding Marx and Engels and their place in history, which might be a little bit mis misinterpreted. At the risk of missing too many steps, how does it then eventually, and I know a lot of years pass, but how does their communist dream sort of morph into dictatorships, which have a communist economic system? Well, it's not a dream. So we have to go into the, the latter 
very latter part of the 19th century with the organization of this, I think, project is better than dream, under the banner of social democracy. And Marx and Engels had quite a lot to do with those movements in Germany, because we're now after 1871. So we have a unified Germany. So in the um, early 1870s, we have the unification of uh, the branches of socialist organizations, which were working class organizations in Germany, for instance, and much the same going on in France and actually in Britain so and elsewhere in Europe. So we have these movements developing against more or less pushback, often more. So the uh, reaction from the imperial government of Germany was to pass an anti-socialist law in 1875, which lasted until 1890, such that socialist parties were illegal and they couldn't stand candidates for election. So there were actually lots of socialist independents. So you see there are various, various ways around this, but it, it was a struggle. And if, if you go lots of places, this is where worker organizations, which is essentially the same thing, the worker welfare organizations, not just political parties, where private police uh, put them down, investigate them. The governments produce anti-union legislation. People are, are you know, locked up, transported, prosecuted for disturbing the peace and any number of other things. And that's essentially the story of the pushback against socialism. So, I mean, Marx and Engels were very much part of this project. Marx died in 1883 and Engels in 1895. And they uh, participated, indeed, helped to invent uh, the Socialist International, which was an organization to publicize the project. I'm avoiding the word dream here. So to push the project, which is utterly doable, to explain it to lots of people around, around the world so, so they could get on board with the same kind of thing. So this sort of collective action for national unification and potential social democracy somewhat within the modern commercial system and somewhat resistant to the modern commercial system could actually work. And you can put it in parallel with civil rights. So this is civil rights for the unpropertied classes in mass democracy. And this is a struggle in the US into the 1970s. You can run it uh, along uh, the same lines with that struggle and also racial indigenous minorities and that kind of thing. So there were lots of property restrictions, uh, which over the years have fallen in a way by constitutional amendments in the US and by reform of the voting acts in Britain and no doubt similar things going on in Canada. Much the same thing is true in Europe. I mean, it's still in progress after World War II. I mean, French women only got the right to vote at the normal voting age after World War II. So, I mean, you can see how that, that will then play out um, in my lifetime, actually. And, you know, as, as I say, I mean, those, those struggles are still ongoing. I mean, we could visit Australia, go through the whole thing. You can visit almost anywhere. So let's visit Russia, because the, this, the struggle was uh, repressed even beyond the imagination of the German government. And anyone sympathizing with democratic ideas is sent to Siberia, which became a school for democracy. And the latest form of democracy from that perspective was the Marxist form of democracy, which says, hey, the people should get a hold of the economy. So through um, various historical mismanagements, I mean, the Tsarist regime in Russia really blew it, uh, getting themselves involved in a European war 
on the wrong side and the Kaiser blew it uh, rather similarly. So in the aftermath of uh, 1918, 1848 breaks out all over again uh, with mass democracy with much more of a, an economic, i.e. Marxist and social democratic agenda. And it's met with very similar forms of uh, resistance. But the aftermath of the war is much more severe. There, there are many more discontented people around who have nothing and are ready for anything who do, more or less, join up with the Bolsheviks. The initial coup was against the liberal regime, which was failing to get Russia definitively out of the war. So the Bolsheviks got into power on a peace land and bread, mostly peace theme, proposed a coalition government and uh, others walked away. So if you bring in the foreign intervention, which is where I started, then, then you go down the road of what every government does, democratic or not, they throw out democracy when there's a national emergency in a civil war, namely a government that's never done that. We had no elections in Britain during World War II at all. The Americans kept, kept it up, but they elected the same, same people uh, the whole time. So national defense of the regime against foreign invasion and foreign invasions are always an aspect, you know, there's always a civil war aspect. I mean, this uh, military dictatorships, Lincoln was a military dictator during the American Civil War. So, I mean, you can, can read the Bolshevik and Leninist regime in that light, and then it's a long story what happens after that, and certainly various people get a hold of it in various ways, and much the same thing is true in China. Again, this is the post-World War II chaos, uncertainty, and very real threats of foreign intervention, and certainly the Civil War. The Nationalist Party was much more on side with the propertied classes and seemed to be that way than with the classes which really wanted a reform of the property system in favor of the working people. So that's, that's really what Mao led the, the long march for. What happens after that, when various other geopolitical and domestic machinations incur, is then another story. But it's easy to have a slogan, it's easy to have a founder. I mean, you can go back to uh, the cross and Jesus, if you like. We can probably wind up there. So, I mean, my, my view is Marx and Engels got turned into sort of icons and got paraded around, the people parade around with crosses and their names got, you know, allied to lots of ideas and projects that uh, they would certainly have repudiated. It's fascinating because it seems like Stalin, Lenin, Mao, I mean, really all of communism, the way we think about it, the negative connotations of it, really had basically nothing to do the dictatorial aspect had nothing to do with what Marx and Engel were talk, Engels were talking about. They were talking about democracy. And then these dictators, in an effort to maintain power, they maybe leached on to the communist economic approach publicly for a PR campaign to say, yeah, yeah, we're all for equality. All of our things are for economy. But at the end of the day, they're just dictators. And then you look at World War II and you see Hitler versus Stalin they're all dictators. People are being treated badly everywhere. It's just under the name of a different economic model. Well, let's go back just a tiny stage on that and inquire why it is you and others think the way you do about these men and about um, the perils and ups and downs of those particular regimes. Of which men? So, Stalin, Mao, and... Yes, uh, all of them. So consider carefully in whose interests it is to send out uh, a message 
that collective action through democracy to alter the property system is a bad idea. And you'll easily find your way back to what you might call corporate or capitalist interest, interest who have a stake in supporting politicians who would like to get that message across to you. So that is essentially why you find it easy to think what you do and why it's made easy for you to think that way. So to think outside that particular box takes quite a lot of work and historical research and imagination. And this isn't to say that everything that uh, happens in the name of communism is good or that even that it's a good idea. It's just to focus on how much effort and energy is put into convincing people that it's not a good idea and why that is such an important project for some people. I like how you challenged me there because I, when I think of Stalin and Mao and, and Hitler fairly, who was not a communist, obviously, when I think of these people, why I am saying things negatively is obviously because of the atrocities they committed. But capitalist countries have also committed atrocities and I'm not talking about those. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yes, I think, I think we have to incorporate uh, imperialism and aggressive commercialism under capitalism. So, and then we, we can easily get to the atrocities. So on the one hand, I've said all of these uh, 19th and early 20th century regimes were not democratic. On the other hand, they did have constitutions and they did an awful lot of uh, imperialism, committed an awful lot of atrocities. And uh, the voters and uh, indeed the workers back home benefited and, you know, didn't actually question it all that much. I mean, some did, but it's a bit like the um, slave trade. I mean, a lot of uh, the benefits went everywhere within certain places, namely the kind of owner-operator societies. The disbenefits occurred out of sight. And of course, there wasn't much political traction in publicizing those back home. So this is to say that one needs to do um, a lot of work and have a bit of imagination and get out of various boxes. And one needs uh, a bit of sympathy with those who are involved in uh, nation building and national projects, when on the one hand, they've got threats from anywhere and everywhere to the whole business of building a regime, which isn't easy. And curiously, many countries are uh, concerned for one reason or another to see that you don't succeed and put their own nominees in. And other uh, countries provide nominees for you and deals and development aid and all kinds of stuff with strings attached, which entangle you and limit your ability to do what you might want with your own people. So if we take the entire continent of Africa, <laughs> just at a go, recognizing their innumerable diverse nations, cultures, peoples, languages, and histories there, you can see how that has played out since the, the end of World War II in terms of conflicts, involvement, civil wars, regimes, and whatever. So all of these processes are very complicated. We, we could run through any, any number of um, leaders in African countries who had various visions and projects of one kind or another across the entire spectrum from, you know, economic collectivity via socialisms to sort of 
ludicrous of selective uh, programs of genocide. So, I mean, what went on there is uh, actually paralleled with numerous projects in Europe. Hitler, remember, was a national socialist, yes. so he said, and actually did what you know, other well-known politicians have done, namely orchestrate working, working class people and poorer people into believing that the solution to their problems is, you know, ethno-nationalism, conquest of other, other places, construction of secure borders, getting rid of unwanted minorities, you name it. It's part of that project. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a perfect example, because I said before, Hitler was a capitalist. And I mean, I always used to be confused, Nazis are the socialist party? But I guess you're saying ultimately, you can't pin dictatorships and you can't pin crimes against humanity on any one of these philosophies or on any one of these systems, because it happens in all these systems. When we look at today, the words communism and socialism, I would think, this is for me, and I'm naive as I often expose myself on this <laughs> To me, communism has a negative connotation, whereas socialism doesn't. To me, socialism has actually quite a positive connotation, whereas communism to me is socialism gone wrong, where there's a dictatorial element involved. And I know that's not the actual definitions of them, but that's how I, and I imagine other people interpret them. How do you in the modern day differentiate communism and socialism? Because perhaps by having more accurate definitions there, there's a way to reduce the stigma of people who have those communist, as we've called them, type leanings. Well, let's, let's go back quickly to the 1830s and 1840s when the terms were interchangeable okay. and used interchangeably. And Marx and Engels identified with both. In this kind of, you know, not well-organized network and sort of mosh pit of ideas, Marx and Engels adopted communism as the more economically focused program that is focused on economics at all, rather than some very specific blueprint program of how economics is supposed to be. So as, as far as they got with this, they adopted a couple of principles, which would sound like socialism or social democracy principles. And they were actually, until not many decades ago, part of the Labour Party program in Britain. I mean, they were only, and uh, until the, the days of Euro, Euro communism, they were part of communist party programs in Europe. So the distinction can be overrated. So if we fast forward to, to now, there's much more, you know, mainstream socialism, compromise with the capitalist system and reformism around, not least because people don't want the disruption that pushback on the system causes. We'd rather work things out peacefully without the apparatus of civil war disorder, chaos, and foreign intervention for whatever reason. So I, th I think the 20th century people learned some lessons there. But in terms of the negativity, um, on the one hand, Stalin and, and Mao were involved in things that became atrocities. There's no doubt about that. But they didn't dream it up that way, I think. We don't actually know. Here you get into kind of psychologism. There, there was, uh, they were under plenty of constraints to do with foreign intervention and civil war in both cases. 
So how you balance that out is uh, up to you. But on the other hand, I go back to people who want to point to them to put you off. The idea of democracy involves much control over the property system. And there's anything wrong with capitalism, including its imperialist legacies, that more capitalism couldn't fix. So there's a very open question on that, and people are questioning it, namely, um, how far could one go with these principles? Or alternatively, and more interestingly, is there anything fundamentally wrong with capitalism? What is the connection between that and aggressive genocidal dispossession, which is still going on? Burning forests down in the Amazon, for instance, everybody's expense, and thereby sort of dispossessing indigenous people. So I guess there's a kind of parting shot in our kind of world. We're kind of used to the idea that indigenous people have got dis dispossessed and maybe there's some way of working them back into our system. But our system is a capitalist system that allows the dispossession to continue as part of the industrial system that poisons the planet and causes climate change. So these things are connected. It's not just coal burning in China. It's actually what's going on in the Amazon and what goes on in the oil shale industry and coal mining in Australia. So, I mean, these are all part of the same things, which do have their roots in capitalism, which has its roots in dispossession, kicking people off uh, the land so that they can be absorbed into a property system which gives some people huge amounts of wealth, power, and control through which they manipulate democratic processes at the ballot box. Terrell, I think you've provided some phenomenal <laughs> wisdom and insight with an incredible history. And I'm, I'm sorry to have abbreviated parts of it. I know there's a huge no, history in between what we talked about. But to me, what I think listeners, there's many things listeners can take out of this. But for me, what resonates is... A lot of these terms, frankly, are a little bit artificial uh, when we're talking about communism, socialism, democracy, and they're labels that we need to be wary of. We need to be wary of a lot of these labels. And it's easy to say, oh, China, communist. They're, they're communist. They're too different from us. That's a bad thing. And we don't, they're so nuanced. We, terms are not necessarily reflective of the reality of what's going on, of the intentions. And all you have to do is look back at Marx and Engels, as you said, their foremost pillar was democracy. So it was coming from a, a place that most of us um, would think is a good thing. So we just need to be more weary and more compassionate about other people who, who label however they do, because really a lot of it's, a lot of it's arbitrary and there's bad things that, go, that are going on all over the world. And it's not just bad communists, which I think is the main stigma, which is what people think about when they hear the word communism. Okay, that's a very good place to close. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope your listeners do too. Terrell, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Have a great day. that's not boring a laundry oh a book club 
computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.